I'm Matthew George, and this is Digging into Deutsch, the podcast where we'll be unearthing the personal stories of the people right here at our agency. This ain't going to be something you'll see or hear on AdAge or one of those industry emails or social posts we're pummeled with each day. On this podcast, we're going to zero in on the person versus the professional. That said, we'll try to give you a sense of how that person informs the pro, how each person's journey in life and what they're all about really makes them special as a professional. We hope you'll be surprised, we hope you'll be inspired, and we know you're going to have a few laughs along the way. So let's dig into today's episode. If you want to drop an F bomb, mm-hmm. feel free. Okay. Uh, if you overdo it, we will edit them out. Yeah. But you know, listen. Uh, if you have a few, in there, I have the reputation. Do you? <laughs> yes. I'd, you have to use it strategically because when you look like a spinster librarian, it really startles people when you let one. You know, it keeps drop. people a little off balance. Doesn't it does. It? Anyway, we're here today with Julia Carson Wade. Julia is Deutsch's Director of Client Accounting. Now, my guess is a lot of people listening to this are not even going to know what that is, including even me, perhaps. So can you just explain that in a couple short sentences? Yeah. The agency handles a lot of client money. Everything they spend in the media and to produce the ads, all that money comes through our hands. And most of it gets passed on to ABC, NBC, CBS, Google, right. you know, all the media places right. where we've bought, we've placed the ads and to all the vendors that we had to pay to shoot the ads. Right, all our production so, partners. Right. So all of that money, which is millions and millions and millions of dollars, passes through us in a middleman kind of way. structure. Yeah. yeah. So we have to make sure that that's being handled properly and... It's and vendors are getting paid on time. We're not holding on to money right, too long. That's right. That kind of thing. Exactly. And so, but you have to manage that cash flow very carefully yeah. because you don't want to be paying these guys before you get the money from the client. Right. And we are paying ourselves out of that money too. Correct. Mm. Which is so, also important. So it's it's just managing all of that client money that comes through and making sure that it's perfectly handled. Right. You know, to both the advantage of the client and the agency, which is a, a nice fine line to walk. And you've been here how long? Since uh, 2003. So that is... Oh, well, what, where are we, 16 15, years? 16 years. Yeah. yeah. Now, Julia, I obviously don't work in personnel. This is not HR. So I'm going to ask you a question that I know you're not sensitive about. Okay. But it's an important question because of the context of other things we're going to be talking about later on. And So our listeners are going to cringe when I ask you this, but what year were you born? <laughs> 1953. 1953. So you are <laughs> seven years older than I am. Your story, uh, the story rather of your mom and dad, yes, is a bit more romantic than most. That's I guess, right, and uh, is very much of another time. I wonder if you can share that story. Yes, yes, it's not an uncommon story, but it is very romantic to the to the point where you will have seen uh, in popular culture various iterations, iterations of-, of this this story. Um, my mother was a young woman in the north of England, in the port city of Hull. And my father was an American soldier during World War II, posted to her hometown. In the Army or Navy? In or the Army. In the Army. And he was about to be embarked to France. Uh, so there he was, you know, in her hometown, and they had a, a church dance to which the soldiers were invited, and they fell in love. And she was... I think 17 when they met, 
18 when they married. Uh, he went off to fight in France. He came back happily. I understand that he helped retake the city of Cherbourg from the German occupation. He came back to, to Hull, and they lived their married life there for a while. And then eventually my brother was born there. So my brother was first a British subject and then became an, oh and then That's became okay. an American citizen <laughs> I'm pounding the table uh, and then became an American citizen to fight in the Vietnam War. So eventually they moved back to New York and of course all the returning vets you know there was no nowhere for anybody to live so they moved back in with his parents and then um, as soon as they could they got an apartment in Flushing Queens and seven years down the road I was born. And speaking of that marriage, <laughs> your mom was, what, a member of the Church of England, I would imagine? Yes. Okay. So, yeah, so that's very sweet because she was Church of England quite naturally, and he was Roman Catholic. And it never occurred to my mother or her family that he was anything but possibly Protestant, right. you know. And really? They, so they never even considered they, that he it, be... They had never met a Catholic, so they certainly didn't assume right away that he was Catholic. Now, there weren't Catholics, just like even a small amount of them in your in that town. There must up. have been, but they didn't truck with them. Right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Okay. And didn't you know they had horns? You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like they hadn't seen any horns. Well, I think people forget about that because I, yeah. you know, I'm I'm old enough to only remember not so much myself, but certainly reading about it. That you know, when Kennedy ran for office oh, here for president, it was a huge deal because people he thought he was oh, going to be enthralled to the Pope. Correct. And, yeah, right. He'd yeah, be taking yeah. orders from Vatican City, right, and that's right. the way people thought right, about that right. back then. And, the, you know, uh, England, up to World War II, was a very homogenous place. You yeah. know, so, But it's, it's romantic in also that when my mother made this leap to marry an American, she did so in the full expectation that she would not see her family again which is hard for us to imagine in the age of such easy transatlantic airfare and, you know, transatlantic phone calls. It was a big deal for us to even talk to our English family right. on the phone because long distance was so expensive. You get on the phone for like right, a minute and a half and yes, someone would be standing yes. over you with a watch. everyone keeping well? Oh, good, you know. So she, when she left and took her own son, their grandchild, and came to America to move permanently, you know, there was a very strong understanding that this was a final farewell. Yeah. So with the advent of much more common and available, accessible to the middle class air travel, that was thrilling because then I got to see my grandmother for the first time, you know. You got to go over there. And... She she used oh, to come to us, okay. yeah, but, but then eventually I did get to go there and yeah. I eventually studied in, in London. But, you know, I just think about the bravery of my mother sort of saying, yes, I'll leave everything, everything I, I know. know. Right, for this man. Right. And a life I don't really right. know. But here's an interesting thing. I happened to be in uh, one of the palaces, I think it was Kensington, and I started chatting up one of the docents who was a woman of about my mother's age. And she said to me, you cannot overstate the allure that the United States had for young women of our age post-war. They had been starving, 
They, right. The rationing was quite stiff. Do you know that the rationing didn't end in England till the mid fifties? Oh, was that right? Oh I yeah, did not know that. And there, you know, there wasn't any place to live. So if you were a young married person, you were pretty well stuck living with your relatives because all the cities had been bombed. There was there were no materials to rebuild with. It was a terrible state. So that was very interesting to me because I thought. Well, yes, my mother was very brave, but she also had a kind of a dream. I've seen so many things that made me wonder. But sometimes it's hard to tell. I said, What kind of things were you into as a kid? I mean, what kind of student were you? What did you hope to be? Oh, yeah. I was a total, I was a certainly a young girl of my time. Okay. So I was socialized very strongly as a, a good little girl. I was definitely into dressing up and all of the rest. But in the sense of um, very much not speaking until you're spoken to, even as like a high school senior, I can remember uh, in family gatherings, my mother turning to me and saying, um, no one is interested in what you have to say. Huh. You know, it was very repressed. So were you sort of raised in a way, sort of don't be visible, stay part of the background? Completely, that yeah. Was, that was be kinda... very good, make us proud. You went to school, you came home with A's, or then there was a discussion. Yeah. And there was no discussion up to that. There was nobody checking to see if you did your work. You know, it was just don't let us hear from the teacher because the only reason you would hear from the teacher was... Um, something bad. And when my teachers tried to kind of tell my mother or my father, you know, she's got this extraordinary ability in this and this or that, they would say, well, please don't tell her. So is it fair to say that making them proud was more about the absence of a negative correct yes you, i mean you needed to be the honest society you needed to be you know yeah. they and they were they were genuinely happy and proud of our accomplishments but they also you know came out of that mentality where you kind of circle your wagons you get a practical job you don't reach for the stars you need to make sure that your needs are taken care of before you dream you know so it was it was not so much about repressing any individual personalities it was protecting you against the onslaught of adult life as they knew it which was a wartime adult life that was pretty strenuous right so it was protective it wasn't it wasn't mean but it was it was inhibiting for sure because I was pretty insecure about you know if if no one tells you you're good at that um, you don't know if you are or not. So you you had abilities, yeah, but you lacked confidence in those abilities. Yeah. So you know I'm thinking specifically of um, acting because mm. you know I was getting the leads in the in the little shows and things you know and I expressed a preference to to pursue this, but you know there was no encouragement for that because that really scared them. You know, on the surface, those things might sound very constraining and even debilitating. And I'm sure in some ways they were, as they were for all of us. But I guess as you look back at those things, and, and as we all do and say, you know, if my parents had done things this way rather than the way they did, my life would have been better in some other way. Right. But at the same time, those things informed who you are today and kind of the person you've become. And, and I'm right. wondering, is, is, is what you see as the good part of that rather than yeah. the what if? The constraining part, yeah. yeah. Like, what are the things in there that kind of 
that you're more that you're richer for rather than poorer. Yes, I I do feel richer for a lot of that stuff, and it's funny because people always say, "Oh, you know, you use language so differently than we do, and you're you know all the etiquette around the forks and the knives, right. and you, and and so they think that's funny, but I think that there's kind of a uh, a sense that that's a loss if those kind of social uh, standards and mores right. kind of go by the wayside. Not everybody wants to be bothered with living with them, but it's really sort of nice to know what they are. Um, but that's like almost Emily Post. It is. It's type very stuff. Emily Post, and not and, that that's bad. Yeah, but some of it is um, has really kind of helped me navigate um, all the things. Those things are intended to help you navigate, which is social interaction. And, and it's interesting. I have a buddy of mine who recently became a, uh, a priest. And without getting all religious about it, but it was interesting something he said to me. He said, you know, I can't remember the number he gave me, but he said like, you know, 40% of people under 30 are not churched. And I said, churched, what does that mean? I wasn't sure. And he, what he said was they weren't brought up in a religion, so they actually don't even know how to act in a religious setting. So, right. for instance, you know, I'm a Christian. If I go and went into synagogue at age 12, you kind of know what to do or That's what not right. to do, even though, you know, that, that religion may be completely different than yours and foreign. Right. So the, the, the value of it is that I can be comfortable in pretty much any setting. Mm. And therefore, I felt adventuresome about my life. I ran off to live in France for a while. I don't know if I ever mentioned that to no. you. <laughs> right some, after, other, some other podcast, perhaps. I did. <laughs> That'll be special I, edition. I ran away. I didn't really run away. I was an adult living in the city on my own. But um, I was invited to go live in the French Alps for a while yeah. with the man that had been my uh, fencing master at yeah. Cornell. And You see the slippage between yeah. the professors and yeah. the kids, right? Exactly. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I was able to feel comfortable in foreign cultures. I studied in England for a while. I took myself ab about and beyond just by myself, feeling pretty comfortable about it because I felt like I could navigate social situations. Um, you know, the downside is I'm there as a teenager playing ping pong with my boyfriend, right? Yeah. And I'm killing him. And my mother takes me aside to say, don't you know you have to let the boys win? So it's a restrictive thing. But then I felt kind of rebellious. So I, <laughs> you know, I took that and said, I'm yeah. enjoying winning yeah. and I'm going to beat him. And he can deal with that as he needs to. <laughs> He's got to learn to lose sometime. Yeah, you know? might as well start now. Might as well start with me being having better eye-hand coordination than he has, <laughs> you know. And then that kind of got me going to to fight to get into an Ivy League school when they weren't accepting very many women. And within those changing times, you needed to figure out which of those things you could take with you and which you needed to right. abandon. And some of them were, were worth taking with you. So worth so worth taking with. I beat my way into Cornell at a time when a lot of the Ivies were not accepting women. Yeah. It was that time, and so there I am earning my way into Cornell, where it's still seven guys to each girl, and the atmosphere is still 
you know, the summer of love happened in 68, right? And so all the social mores are out the window. And the the boys are after you, the TAs are after you, the professors are after you. But now the structure that protected you is gone. Because what was that called? It was the Latin term. Um, oh, in loco parentis. In loco parentis. Yeah, so they which had literally dissolved means, it. it this, is, this is your local parent. This local parent, right. Right. Yeah. So basically with that, the way that manifested itself, as I understand it, is colleges would have, for instance, curfews for girls. Right, exactly. And they get to be in by whatever, 10 o'clock. Right. And everything was monitored. And then the guys, so you were sort of protected. You were protected at your own expense, right? right. The way they protected you was that they deprived you of the same rights and privileges yeah. that the boys had. Yeah. So I was thrilled to death that that had passed by the time I got to, to Cornell. But on the other hand, there was there was no um, recourse if uh, you were harassed or if you were date raped or, you know, there was nothing in place yet to protect you. And indeed, the zeitgeist of the moment was you're square if you don't let these guys impose themselves on you on the first date. You know? Right. So I was at the the Ivy that probably had the most women. I'm not sure about Penn. So you know, so Cornell is so, relatively more progressive, right? Which I thought would be sort of make good. it make it good, but it was still the misogyny was so woven into the fabric of the place, you know, where it was just considered normal to post slogans about how ugly the co-eds were and normal for professors to stand up and accuse you of taking a place that had some deserving boy could have had, which, you know, my parenthetical unspoken retort always was, well, I guess if it had been so fucking deserving, you would be sitting here instead of me. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you could never say it. And then you would have to like, um, repulse the same teacher from asking you out on a date, you know. Mm. <laughs> so, and was um, there was there was it as uh, explicit as sex for grades kind of thing almost? Um, was it that? Did it know, ever become that transactional? It, or tri- it didn't. Not at school. I okay. mean, that was. It, I got into that in the auditioning. But yeah. At school, it was more like we were. And when I say I'm a person of my my time, so there I'm raised to be a good girl. Um, to make nice, not to make people uncomfortable, um, not to say anything rude, and, you know, keep smiling, and that men have the authority. So so I'm not, at that time, aware of any, you know, feminist rage boiling, right? But, so there, if, was, but there was feminist rage at the time, there because was, there was the whole ERA there thing. There was, but I... I could not implement it in my own situation. So yeah. when my professor started asking me out, I was flattered. And you have to understand that, you know, when you're reading a lot of the experiences of women who have been uh, imposed on, there is kind of a sense if you're a schoolgirl and your teacher shows you attention, you're sort of flattered. Mm. You know, there's it's a very um, complex situation because you you may certainly... Uh, unimaginable extents be complicit in the relationship. If you had asked me at the time, was I being coerced into dating that teacher? I would have said, no, I'm an adult woman. I'm mm. 19. And, uh, you know, well, yes, I am in his class and he does have authority over my grade, but I'm a good student and I'm I'm deserving of my A. And um, no, I don't think he'll screw me if I stop seeing, you know, no, I want to see him and I'm flattered and, you know, this older man wants to take me out and he thinks my conversation is interesting. And, you know, that experience, you know, 
as a young woman getting out of college today, someone who maybe started here and is maybe 23, yeah. 24 years old, whatever, might listen to what you just said and kind of go, whoa, 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 what, what was that all about? Mm-hmm. And, and that's understandable. It's a different yeah. context. and different We're people of our time. Yeah, exactly. Know? And that frame of reference has changed drastically just in the past, you know, four or five years here even, just in exactly. the most recent memory. But if your adult self was talking to your younger self about mm-hmm. those incidents and how you handled it at the time, like what, what would you say? What would your adult oh, say, self say to your younger self? I actually have had that conversation with my younger self. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. Regretfully. I, I wish that I had said to myself, you don't need to feel uncomfortable all the time with this stuff. Tell him no. I wish I had said, you don't need to step aside and let that guy do that. You don't need to smile at him every time he gets too close to you. I just wish I had been ballsier. But you actually felt uh, a need to smile even. Totally. Like, make nice, don't make anyone uncomfortable, Mm. in spite of the fact that they were busy making us as uncomfortable as they could. But it didn't work the other way. It didn't work the other way. You were not, you would be turned into some kind of disobliging young woman with a nasty name. It's interesting because that shame, the fact that you could shame someone only, I mean, maybe it only worked one way or mainly worked one way at those times. It did. It only worked one way. And you were in that drama department at Cornell. Yes. You were studying theater. Yes. And uh, thinking back on that, and I know we went on and you studied at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts in London. Right. During college. Technique-wise and Mm. sort of your training, was there anything dramatically different like Cornell's? Yeah. The Cornell training, their teaching methods were, were very much derived from Stanislavski and the Actors Studio. Um, So very much you've got to kind of plunder your your own life experience and your feelings and make substitutions to arrive at a characterological truth. So that's a very, is it fair to say that's a, almost like a very sort of intense, almost psychological it is. base? It is. It's like you're drawing on your own experience as a human being, which is what you need to do, you know, but, okay. but so you don't... you're a non-actor. I kind of got that right the first you time. You did. You, like, nailed it. And the thing is that you don't want to, you have to have a technique that allows you to replace your own experience of losing your father with with something that is not going to rape your own feelings all the time. You can't right. you can't do your job like that, right? right? So cuz it's just too exhausting and exactly. too painful or whatever. Exactly. And those things eventually will become dulled from you Overuse. know from doing that. Yeah. So it's there's a technique involved with that which you learn and then you can, you know, go fly with it. But uh, in England, their training has always been very craft oriented. So make sure that you understand all your accents. You know, they've got like 40 accents they make you learn or, yeah. or that they used to, you know. But that was at a time when, you know, there was a received British pronunciation and then everything else was a character, you know. So, but they would also tend to say, look at, go from the text, let the text inform what your character needs to do. Now, what's an example of a text informing the character? So the most wonderful example I've ever been told and shown of this was in Romeo and Juliet. 
So Juliet's on the balcony, and she's holding the vial of sleeping serum. So this is toward the end of the play. Right. And just uh, the plot, she wants to, uh, there's something where she just wants to give the appearance of being dead, That's right. right. So Juliet is contemplating taking this vial of sleeping Sleeping serum, which the the friar has gotten from the pharmacist who, you know, has sworn that this is all going to work out okay. But there's a million things that can go wrong. And so now this monologue that she has, she's on the balcony, she's holding the poison. And she's debating. Potential things that can go wrong. What if the friar has another agenda and he really intends to kill her? What if the pharmacist got the potion wrong and it's going to kill her? And all this is being verbalized. Yes, this is a huge monologue. And... Bearing in mind that all of the female characters are played by young boys in Elizabethan times when Shakespeare wrote this, and so they may need a little assistance in creating their character and finding the emotional truth at any given time. Shakespeare has written it, if you look at the the monologue, the text, there is no punctuation. (laughs) So what's going to happen is you're going to start freight training through this monologue and you're going to run out of steam because there's nowhere to breathe. Right. And if you can't breathe, what typically happens panic. is you get panicked and, and frightened. Anxious, yeah. <laughs> so Shakespeare gives it to you on a silver platter. Right. He's going to make you panicked and frightened just because he hasn't allowed you to breathe while you're, you start off on this monologue and you find yourself up a creek. That is incredibly brilliant. It's so wonderful. So That's why you're Shakespeare. That's right. And what was the other tool? It was text, which you just gave an example right. of. Right. And, and anything that's going to make you feel a certain way. I mean, so we're talking about like... genuine feelings. We're talking about corsets. We're talking about fuck me pumps. Okay. For real physiological reasons. For instance, you put on four-inch heels, yeah. and suddenly your center of gravity is way high. And it makes you very unstable. And so you feel very vulnerable. Or else you can stomp down the runway on those and you feel like a diminutrix. Uh huh. So, on a corset, a corset. How do you say that word, by the way? A diminutrix? Diminutrix. (laughs) I always say dominatrix. Oh, there too, I'm sure. You say tomato, I say tomato. Well, you know, I had that mother. <laughs> I, didn't, I never thought we'd be discussing the pronunciation of that particular word I know. today. So, so there's all of that. I mean, wearing a corset is a huge one because, of course, it restricts your ability to move your body. You can't bend over. You can't breathe very well. Wearing hip rolls. What, I don't even know what a hip roll oh, is. Oh, a hip roll is something that's used to full, uh, flesh out the shape of um, period clothing that requires a broad profile. Oh, like, got it. I like see. Like panniers yeah. on the Louis the Fourteenth dresses yeah, that yeah, are I so know wide, you know. Um, so any of those things where you suddenly have a space that you have to be aware of, you can't fit through that door, you can't get around that chair, unless you really own the space, because now you need a wingspan of six feet. The maid, she's not wearing the, that stuff, and she can skulk around in the back. But if you're the mistress, and you're in panniers or, or hip rolls or anything that takes up room, you're owning it. And so an American, you know, an American actor says... I need to be the world's greatest brain surgeon. One of the things you're going to do is you're going to con- confirm upon yourself. You just give it to yourself, the, that ability. You say, without question, I know that I am the world's. But, and you kind of do this little mental exercise with yourself where yeah. you say, I'm it, right? And then you can go forward and you can do the scene and you're empowered. Versus the Brits. Versus would... the Brits who might put on a piece of clothing that makes them feel that way. A white coat. Right. right. And you know? like put some pens in your right. pocket and you're ready to go. But here's the wonderful thing. It's like a circle of 
a way to get into the character, and you can enter that circle in any of those points. It should be, use whatever works. And you'll find that most really great actors, they're always saying, I just use whatever works. Yeah. You know? This has been like a little primer on acting technique. It's wonderful fun, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it is. It really yeah, is. I want to go out and do some let's of this Let's do stuff. it. <laughs> let's let's, let's put on a show. Let's have our Cornell, you go to the Royal Academy, right. you get out of college, and that's Straight. kind of what happens then. Like, how do you, do you start yeah. trying to work in acting? Yes, yes, I do. And um, how did... It's it's a tough start because um, I made a tactical error. I did not go to a conservatory in the United States. I took my conservatory training, such as it was, in a limited form at the Royal Academy. Mm. So there was, there was this problem that I didn't have a network if I had gone to an American conservatory school, right, you would have had more contacts. I would have had a yeah, yeah. I mean, you go to you go to a Circle in the Square school, and they bring all the agents to see you, and you get exposure, and they help you springboard into your career. Yeah. But really, nobody knew anybody at RADA, and were not impressed that I had gone there. So, so there was that that I just had no good business acumen yeah. and I had no good business help and then so then you're trying to find all your little all your little survival jobs survival jobs right and you're is that just, a common term in the acting community survival yes, job okay. yes until they turn into what's called golden handcuffs this job is one of my survival jobs turned into a permanent turned into a permanent career uh-huh yeah absolutely yes so it's something I don't much speak of but my liberal arts degree did not have any math emphasis in it in fact, I had not taken math since 10th grade. Right. Now here you are handling all the money. And I'm a VP in accounting. Yeah. But, you know, accounting is a wonderful thing because it's double entry accounting is a very elegant process. Yeah. And it's very commonsensical. And if you have the temperament for it, which is patience and, a, and an attention to detail and uh, you sort of get a kick out of number puzzles, you'll be good at it. Yeah. You know, and so, you and you learned that. I learned it. I'm one of my early jobs uh, was I was hired for the switchboard and brought back into the accounting department at a company that was an early software programming company. They were doing like a lot of the programming for the banks as they shifted into having ATMs. Right. right? Yeah. And the the old lady, I say this lovingly, since I'm one now. Um, who was in charge of the accounting department taught me all of this accounting. And I was lucky enough that there was still no computerized accounting yet um, because I learned double entry manually in ledgers. Yeah, those big green things. On those big green pages. And that's really how it sinks in. You know, you post it into two places and you understand why they match. Yeah. And you understand why you're putting it there. Yeah, you're really. And it has to add up. Yeah, you you're know, doing it by hand. You're doing so it by hand. And so, so your really brain really gets it. Yeah. 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 Did, um, so that was how you entered into, into where a, you into are account- now. Yeah, but there was like a whole little array of awful, interesting, sla- yeah. awful slash So let's talk about those. Job. What are some of the things that you applied for yeah, or so got there, that yeah. you were just like really off the wall? Um, one of the first, very first things I got right out of, you know, arriving in the city was... Um, 
actually keeping books for a guy that owned lots of parking garages in New York. And then I kind of discovered in my little innocent way as I trudged through his books that he was like totally mobbed up. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't figure that out beforehand? Yeah. Parking garages wasn't a little cue? And he was very scary. And he was also one that sort of like, you know, let's go to lunch and planting a big kiss on your cheek, you know? So like, it was like, oh, this is getting complicated. And was he, point, was he doing things like pointing at your big green pad and going, let's move that number over there? Was it that um, kind of thing? He, he was, yeah. He was doing things like, um, I realized that one of his tenants had paid for the month twice, and yeah. I got on the phone to call him and say, don't send a check next month. We have your payment already because you paid twice. And he came out of his office screaming, yeah. hang up, hang up, hang he up. Crazy, right? and he, he went crazy, Because that's extra money. He went crazy. He would have stolen that money. He would never have returned it, right? So, yeah, so that job didn't last very long. That was just, a, I mean, I, I think he fired me. But then, um, and this was the sad part, I took that job instead of being a Playboy bunny. I interviewed to be a bunny because they were opening the the New York club that opened in 1976 or whatever and it was. And where was that? Remember? It was either somewhere between 57th and 59th, just off Central Park. And they needed lots of bunnies. And this was the lots night this bunnies. was the nightclub. This was the club. And yeah. what was it? It was like It was a restaurant. It was going to be It was it no, was, no, no, no. It was the uniform. In fact, it was very interesting. So so you go to the interview, right, and it's being held, I think, in the in the Pierre Hotel, one of the big hotels. So a nice hotel. Nice hotel. And you get in there, and <laughs> there are thousands of women, young Th women. Thousands. To, well, hundreds. I, okay. I, but the place is packed, right? It's a suite. It's got bedrooms. It's got a living room where he's doing the interviews. And you've been told to come in a bathing suit and four-inch heels. So you bring that like in your little suitcase. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you take your little clothes off and you, you know. And you where do you get changed? We were in the in the bedrooms. Okay, but with like a million other girls. Yeah, with a million other girls, right. And, and I have to tell you, with all of the impositions on women by men during this period, this was like the most respectful interview I ever had. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which is really hard to imagine, right? It's saying something. It's, it is because I think they knew they were under scrutiny, right? Because, you know, Gloria Steinem had written her expose and, um, you know, they were really having to clean up their act. So they were very careful not to seem importunate to the, to the women that they were interviewing. Right. So I was thrilled because, you know, they were really hands off. Yeah. But there and you are. It was are. very professional. Except you're in a bathing suit and scanties. You're scanties. You dated yourself with that one, if you don't mind me saying. <laughs> Absolutely. So you look around the bedroom, right? And there's this universe of women on the scale of this one doesn't own a full-length mirror, and this one won the beauty pageant. Right. You know, so it's like all over the place. Women, again, we're women of our time, right? What a thrill to be a bunny. And a lot of them hadn't read... To be read... held up almost like as a female idea. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of them hadn't read Gloria, so they didn't know what had gone on there, which was, uh, you know, the bunnies in the 60s were... They were submitted to internal exams before they could um, be hired. And what was that about? Because you weren't supposed to be allowed to date the clients. What so is it? I mean, I don't want to really get really A graphic. pelvic exam. But for looking for... Venereal disease? Who knows? But the idea was ridiculous because by the same token, you were forbidden to date 
the clientele on pain of firing. Yeah. Um, so the business had been exposed by Gloria Steinem in her expose where she went undercover. Oh, right, where she was a bunny. She went as a bunny That's undercover right, I about that. yeah. and had that incredible expose. Yeah. Her, I, I it read it in a collection of her essays, but it was investigative journalism that she was right. doing at the time. So in the interview, you approach the desk and the guys behind the desk and you sit down and you have a lovely chat about your all your academic accomplishments. But you're wearing a bathing suit. You're, you're, in, you're in this ridiculous outfit, right? <laughs> and you have been shown the even more ridiculous outfit that you would be required to wear if you were hired, which is the bunny outfit with the tail yeah. and the slightly padded abdomen, which is very funny because that was the ideal then. And the, the, the So people looked a little chubbier than they were in that. It, there was just a swelling over the abdomen. I don't know. I, I don't need any padding there, so I, I regarded that with dread. But... <laughs> But that was a little bit of a female It was like a female ideal. ideal. At the, at the it time. was. Yeah. And so, okay, so we've been shown the outfit. We've we've agreed that we're all willing to wear it. And we're sitting there. And on paper, I look pretty good. Um, I also have a terrific, I'm in terrific condition because I've been fencing and I've been doing Aikido and I've right. been doing dancing. I'm long legs, you know, pretty much what they could wish for. Kind of on the plain side, you know, splodgy nose. Oh, well. But definitely a contender. And so then he asks me to stand up and he says, now, um, I'm going to ask you to walk away from me. And when you get to the wall across from this desk, would you please don't turn around, stand there and face it until I ask you to turn around. So he can really check you out. So now, you know, yeah. it's the check. It's the big butt check. Right? <laughs> so I, I dutifully toots my way across the floor. and You toots, did you? Oh, of course you got to toots. You're in four chills. <laughs> You've got choices. You can stomp or you can toots. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but anyway, we, I came back. I tootsed my way back to the desk. Okay. And he said, thank you very much. And that concluded the interview. But I didn't hear from them until I had already accepted the, the mobbed up bookkeeping job. So, <laughs> so unfortunately, the timing was off. But I kind of thought I was probably better off not being a bunny anyway. Yeah. Think um, about how what life would have. Yeah. Well, it might have re returned to right back to where you are now. But those things have very very short shelf short lives. Life, yeah. So the the acting. So when did, did did you give that up as a practical dream eventually, or did you ever give it up as a dream? Um. Well, in a practical sense, I had to yeah. because once you commit yourself to working nine to five. You're no longer available to audition. Yeah. So you, you hang on as long as you can. I was working days at some jobs and then working nights at the Figaro Cafe in the village waiting on table at night. I was doing all melange of jobs to try to keep some slot of time open. Open for auditions. But really what happens is you're exhausted and you've got, you're working so much that you can, you're not really available as, as much as you need to mm. be. So I did give it up in a practical way, and I committed myself to accounting. And you worked at a series of agencies, I think. Just right? two. Two, okay. Yeah. Deutsch seduced me away from Havas. Okay. Yeah. but. Um, and how long were you at Havas? 17 years. Okay, all right. Yeah. And you've been here? Uh, 16. 16, Yeah, right. yeah. So yeah. That's a good long career. It was a good long career, yeah. yeah. It yeah. is a good long and career. I, and grateful for it, you know, considering that I'm not a CPA or, yeah. you know, really grateful it's for amazing, it. It's amazing, really. It is you know, amazing. Here's this, here's, this, yeah. here's this lady went to Cornell. Yeah. Uh, Royal Academy Dramatic Arts, survival yeah. jobs, yeah. and now yeah. this was a survival job that turned into a career.
So later in that career, much later in life, you took up ballet, which just fascinates the hell out of me. Yes. So could you tell me kind of when that happened (laughs) and what motivated you? So I had loved modern dance in college. I had always wanted to dance ballet, but my parents couldn't swing it. I I come from a pretty modest background. And then um, it turned out that I had quite early onset arthritis. I like got generalized to, or in certain parts? Generalized in my joints. Yeah. And in, I got to New York, and I started trying to take ballet. Now I'm an adult. I'm working, and I'm going to try to do it as an adult at night. And I discovered that a, a beginning ballet class in New York is no such thing. Yeah. You have to know ballet. These people know ballet. As an adult. As an adult. Yeah. They've been taught. They took it as kids. They, but now they just want a kind of easy level class to kind of warm up. You know, yeah. They're in point shoes. They're, they're, there's Broadway babies. They're yeah. sort of spiffing up the pirouette. You know, <laughs> And I'm like, I really needed somebody to show me what first position was. You yeah. know, So that, I, I got totally intimidated out of that and I went a couple of times and I said I I don't know enough to take this class so then I I did other things I ran distance and did all these things but in the meantime my joints were kind of breaking down so I had a lot of uh, joints removed from my toes you know just to clean up the remove some of the pain that that was causing so I was on crutches and canes for a lot in my 40s so all of this this wish to dance became very sort of far-fetched and attenuated. You know, it's just like not yeah, going to happen. Right. And so the year I was 61, I found that Joffrey was offering a workshop for adults called Absolute Beginners. Perfect. I said, that's me. Where they took you if you'd never had it and ha- took you by the hand and showed you first position and second position show- and showed you the bit enough to get you into that Beginners class, what they call open beginners, where everybody in the world comes yeah. whenever they feel like it, and you know it. So I took the workshop twice through. It's two parts. I took four parts. Yeah, just to get it right. <laughs> I have no muscle and how, memory. And how, now you're, and your age at that point, you're 61. Yeah. And the next oldest person is roughly what, you say? There was one other lady that was, all, that was my age, a couple of years older, actually, but Everybody else was like in their 20s and okay. they had done it as children but wanted to do it again yeah. and but just didn't remember enough. Or, you know, up through the 30s, the bulk, young women who just had a baby and wanted to come back, that kind of thing, and yeah. loved it, um, but needed to be shown again what to do. So you started then and you've been doing it? F- Four years. Uh, it'll be five in September. And how often do you do it? I do it two to three times a week. And it's how long is it? 90-minute classes. Wow. It's their classic belly classes, you know, and I'm in there with people on point and people who dance beautifully, and I'm the worst in the class, and I um, I try to stay out of their way, and there's a lot that I can't execute, and I'm falling apart, you know, like I, I tore the planter plates in my feet because I was having so much fun jumping yeah. that I'd like jump. You want to jump. Yeah. But um, it's thrilling. It is thrilling. And uh, there's no recitals, right? No recitals. Thank, God. Thank goodness. It'd be pretty tough to compete <laughs> yes. with like a five-year-old. <laughs> or the parent way with like 10 bouquets ready exactly. to give them. Uh, so, I mean, so now you've been doing it for five years. I mean, obviously you have no aspirations of being the principal dancer in the right. Joffrey Ballet. Right. But what are your aspirations for yourself? Yeah. So there is, in the execution of any discipline like that there is usually some kind of joy that comes with it whether you're a painter a musician or a a singer any any discipline like that right so I get that in every class 
but but I also have ambitions for it as well, because I really do believe that um, when my uh, career as an accountant is over, that I'm going to return to auditioning. And it's going to be, I have to think a lot more about it because I don't understand how the business is conducted today, which Mm. so much stuff is online. You're right. Um, In my day, you... You hoofed it over. You hoofed it and got rejected, or you mailed it and got rejected. But what's the ballet? How are you linking the ballet? So to the that? ballet is is a very important skill for an actor. Oh, just your body movement. Yeah, just your body movement, keeping yourself flexible, being yeah. able to move gracefully. There's a category of um, skill for when you're auditioning. They kind of list things that you you need to be as an actor, what they're looking for. Right. And there is one category called actor who moves well. How interesting. So it so means just that, that fluidity. You're not a dancer, yeah. but you can dance. Yeah. So if they're looking for dancers, they're looking for dancers, right? Yeah. But if they're looking for an actor who has to dance as well, it's called an actor who moves well. Yeah. There's, there's also actors who sing. They're not singers, right? They're actors who sing. So it, it implies a, that the actor A moves, musicality to, yes, their, that's right. to the way they speak. That's right. They can speak. That's and right. And they can, they can they'll be able to sing. Right. And it might be an older character actor. You know, mm. they don't need the opera singer for it. Right. They just need somebody who can carry the tune. Oh, that's interesting. I've never mm-hmm. heard that before. Yeah. So so if if I manage to reintroduce myself to the to the auditioning process, um, that would be a wonderful thing to be able to demonstrate. It you know, it also helps keep me very fit. Yeah. I do ballroom as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I've done ballroom for a long do time you do that with, with your my husband? husband. Yeah, oh, that's nice. Mm-hmm. My, you know, my wife bugs me to do that, and I've, I've always oh. kind of been interested. Oh, you should, you should. It's, I don't think I have the natural ability. It's terrific. Anymore. Even more fun is to just do it with the teacher and leave your husband home. Really? Yeah. Oh my goodness, <laughs> because those guys are like iron covered in velvet, and this is—I mean, my husband. We may have to edit this part out. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you can't put a foot wrong because they're so strong. Oh, really? So yeah. they're just so guiding they, you. When their lead is so immaculate and suddenly you are motoring. I mean, when I waltz with the professional, and this is ridiculous, This, the, the man that teaches me waltzing is um, one of the world champions. And it's like having Mark Spitz teach you how to dog paddle. You know, it's it's a ridiculously qualified person to teach you how to get from, you know. Right, yeah. But I dance at an incredibly high level when I'm in his arms. Really? Because you can't do it wrong. It's just amazing. Um, And my husband, you know, he loves it because these gorgeous women, you know, take him in their arms and and they're so strong that he looks good so i was just going to say it's the same thing when the instructor does it. yeah because they know both parts so we have god where did i take a left and those guys took a right and became a dance instructor i know boy it's really great so you should try it because it's it's thrilling it's thrilling just like ballet is thrilling and it's really fun that you can do it with your wife and then boy the next wedding you go to you are like clearing the floor it's so much fun my wife always yells at me because i don't dance at weddings it's like a big sort of of contention with us because i mean honestly you do need some skills to do it nice to do it well i know i hear you but now based on your description maybe i want to leave my wife at home when i go (laughs) look there is much to be said for both arrangements and for my part, my husband and I have this unspoken deal where occasionally, you know, if if it's inconvenient for one of us, if I have to work or if he's not feeling oh, well, that's okay. We, 
we'll just go take the list Good for by you. ourselves. Why not? <laughs> it's a um, an unspoken uh, complicity that really? uh, we'll ne- get a shot at the really? ne- the professional <laughs> by ourselves. <laughs> you never talked about it out loud, though. <laughs> I know. But um, lately, we've been we've been zeroing in on the Argentine tango, yeah, which is has a whole different level of thrillingness. To really, it. yes, it's a very intimate dance. It's huh. a it's a lot of, a lot it's of a social touching, dance. Yeah. yeah, yes, and it's huh. uh, it comes out of a period in the culture of Buenos Aires uh, when they had that's a lot enough of, for me right there. They had a lot of immigrant <laughs> men working the docks, and they were lonely. Um, single men. Oh, would it be like they pay a dime for dances? Is that, yes. that kind of thing? Yes. Yeah. And um, so it was really the only way they could be touched. You know, they, they could have physical in- intimacy was to have these dances. Oh. And so the, um, in fact, the tango was illegal in like much of Europe and America. Sounds like it should be. Through the, <laughs> through the 19th century. And I'm not sure about the early 20th. But um, it's also a very intriguing set of movements to get under your belt. I mean, really, you cannot be said to be properly oh. educated without a good tango. Yeah. Take that and work with it. <laughs> oh, I will. <laughs> you right. would enjoy. <laughs> All right. I think we got to stop. Just your history, you know, growing up in a household that was a mix of two cultures. And I know that people don't think, oh, Great Britain's kind of like us, but it is two cultures. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, going to college during what was a time of, you know, really seminal change in this country. Yeah, huge upheavals. Coming off the the summer of love, Mm -hmm. the whole ERA thing going on to kind of misogyny. The hippies, hippies. oh my goodness, yeah. Yeah. you know, you're, you're training for acting, you're getting rejected, all mm-hmm. the survival jobs, mm-hmm. those things, though. How does that kind of influence, you know, how you approach your job each day? How would you yeah. say it? Like, just in terms of yeah. what you take from that, in terms of how you deal yeah, with other people, yeah. your yeah. your disposition at work. Yeah. You know, just... It's very interesting you ask, because um, I think that people perceive me as um, sort of, detail-oriented and maybe strict mm-hmm. because I, I'm a perfectionist. Um, but All that I, double entry stuff. Right. I am a perfectionist. I mean, but. you could talk to my husband. But, <laughs> but on the other hand, I have a very soft spot in my heart for um, all the young people that are continually moving through the ranks yeah. that um, kind of need to be taken by the hand and shown, you know, Conceptually, right, this, what does this mean, and how do you do your job? And this and is the way to be professional this is, in this area. Yes, yeah. yeah, and so you know, I've caught myself speaking sharply once or twice, and I thought, "Oh, you don't want to do that." You know, it's like, um, you well, know, why, why do you criticize? It's very yourself? painful, you know, because I remember being rejected, and it's it's just it's so painful, yeah. you know. So just don't ever ever pass that on, you know. Yeah. Just make sure that nobody feels coming to you for anything that you feel ex- you know, that, that they think you're accessible for any question they have right. you know and they're not ashamed to ask a question. right that they should always come and ask because my gosh the consequences of not asking are so much worse you know right and 
I, as a young person, I would certainly always not want to reveal that I didn't know too much, you know, Mm. like you, I think that's every young person's insecurity is like, you want to appear to know it, right? Mm. But that's such a a specious thing, it's going to get in trouble, you know, you need to come and ask. But you're aware that someone could get in trouble that way, and you're just looking out for it. I really try to stay available, even though I think I give off the impression that I'm a real hard ass, and I, Do you? Some, I, I think I might, and I'm not sure. See, you don't, we don't work together, so yeah. I, don't, I don't have a sense of that. I think I do because I get strict. You know, I'm like, hmm. why haven't you built that? You right. know, it's like, what are you thinking? You right. know? Yeah. But um, so I'm afraid that sometimes I, I come off that way. But um, uh, But you're aware of it. But I'm aware of it. So I keep trying to temper it. And also temperamentally, I'm sort of, at Havas, they said, oh, Julia doesn't suffer fools. And I thought, well, that could be a good thing, but that could also be mean that you're being really mean to people. So you right. better be careful, yeah, you know. Yeah. Well, Julie, listen, thank you so much. This oh, you're been, so welcome. This has been amazing. It was and really, really fun. Wonderful. Thank and you. we'll see you around. Yeah, yeah. Right. Okay. Digging into Deutsch is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Matthew George, with additional editing from Daniela Morrison and Vonda Lepage. Technical assistance is provided by Trip McCune, Evelyn Martinez, and Jeff Morgan. Also, thanks to Chris Catone, Rondal Meeks, Val DeFebo, and especially my old pal Barbara Chandler for their concept and editorial inputs. Thanks for listening, and until next time, we'll just keep on digging. Yeah, we could have spent, we should have had a whole section just on the whole ballerina stuff. Oh, I know. The ballerina stuff is great. And, oh my goodness, um... You know, the the subculture of it, the little skirts and the tights and the, you know, oh, my gosh. I was in um, I was in the dressing room last year, um, and in comes a guy, I should say a lady, who was clearly transitioning from man to woman uh-huh. and not very far along the process. Right. A big person, yeah. a big, bulky, late middle-aged person with a front porch <laughs> and... and <laughs> broad shoulders and an Adam's apple and a oh, God bless this guy, this lady. He, she put on her tights and her leotard and she came out and we stood together at the bar and she worked her heart out. And I thought, you know, I, I look, you know, I'm 65. I did a double take in the dressing room before she put her tights and leotard on. I thought, she knows where she is, so I'm not saying anything. Right. You know, she's here intentionally. We're we're all gals here, and um, God, she, you know, she broke my heart because she was there so bravely, right? So and she really bravely, to and, to, and to do her thing there, doing her thing. And I thought, well, that's the two of us. That's yeah. me. You know, I'm yeah. sorry. I'm getting sort of emotional. I just thought it was so brave. Yeah. So she was just really. Yeah. You know, no way was she going to look like... What she, but she wasn't going to let that get in the way of right, her passion. Right, right. And none of us, you know, that are outliers like that, that love the ballet, are ever going to approach the little dancing fairy girl, you know, yeah. the teacher. Um, that physique, you yeah. know, that that um, morphology, right. that, you know, the way they look. It's just fun. Yeah. And I just loved that she was there. It was yeah. great. Yeah. Together. Both of us at the bar. (laughs) Doing your best. Yeah. A little audio asterisk here. The views presented in this podcast are those of the individuals recorded on the interview and not those of Deutsch Inc. So, now you know that.